We're up to Parakeh. For the last few weeks, we've, we've been discussing the story of the Jews crossing the Yardin and the stones they took out and placed in Gilgal. Now we're up to a whole new story, new narrative. We're up to, uh, we're up to an entirely new, new episode in the entry of the Jews into Eretz Kanat. So we're in Parakeh, Pasigalaf. This, this story, from the first, the first ten him or so, from the beginning of the parak until the beginning of the parak until Pasuk Tess or so, is going to be about the, the mass circumcision that occurred, that Yeshua performed on the Jews when they, right after they crossed the Yardin, immediately upon their entry into Eretz Kenan. I mean, a lot of questions this episode is going to raise. Where I, I intend to spend probably a few weeks on this uh, on this story. A lot of questions it raises. The the primary one is going to be why were so many Jews not circumcised in the desert? The pasuk is going to say they. That, some Simcha says it was dangerous. That's one of the approaches uh, t- offered. We'll discuss that. That's a famous approach of Chazal. We'll discuss that. Not this week, I think, but we'll discuss that another week. But that's going to be the central question here. Why were so many people in need of brismila? Adults. What happened to brismila? It's such a fundamental Jewish mitzvah. Why was there a need for such a mass circumcision? So that's a question we'll get to. There are a number of other questions which we'll touch on as we go through the narrative. So let's see first the psukim. We'll, we'll read. Uh, we'll go through a bunch of the psukim together, and then, and then and then discuss some of the details that emerge, questions and details uh, that that emerge from this narrative. So Perikay pasuk aleph vayhi chishmoa kol malchehu emori asher beaverhayardain when all the kings of the emori. There, there are a lot of different peoples in Canaan. We know there are the seven nations, Canaani, Chiti, Amori, Prizi, Yivusi, Gergashi, Chivi. Uh, uh, there, 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 there are ten, according to some counts, there were ten. There are a lot of nations, but often they're often all referred to as Canaani or Amori. All right. So the Kamal Amori, all the kings, we're going to read about Yeshua's conquering 31 kings later. Unclear, and we think of a king as the king of a country, typically a substantial size. We have Luxembourg and some small countries as well. But uh, there were a lot of kings in Canaan, so the, some of them may have been more analogous to local uh, warlords than full-blown kings. But whatever they were, there were a lot of kings of the Amari in Canaan. When they all heard, the Malchah Amari Hashabah Eber Hayard, Yama, on the, 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 the side, Eber is the side, or the the side of the Yardin, Yama. Eber Yardin is a famously ambiguous term in Biblical Hebrew. Eber Yardin means the side of the Yardin, typically the other side of the Yardin. Other is a relative term. It's relative to where you are. In, in rabbinic literature, for example, when we refer to Eber Yardin, we typically refer to the east bank of the Jordan. The east bank being the, the Eretz Israel proper is the west bank, the whole area west of the Jordan, where everything we know today, Yerushalayim, Shem, Chevron, you know, Beresheva, all, all the cities that we know today, the Galil, that's all on the west bank of the Jordan. But when we say Eber Yardin today, in, in rabbinic Hebrew, and, and typically when we use the term Eber Yardin, we mean the east side of the Yardin, which is where the two and a half tribes, the tribe of Ruvain, tribe of God, half of the tribe of Menashe, where they live, that's typically what we refer to Eber Yardin. But Eber Yardin is a relative term, so if, you, if, if, you're, if, if the Jews had just spent a lot of time on the, the east side of the Yardin, we just described the crossing of the Yardin in detail, so now they were on the other side of the Yardin, which in this case means the west side of the Yardin. We call that Avery Yardin as well. But okay, that's why the Torah clarifies. The Navi clarifies. 
modern Hebrew, Eber Hayarden refers to the West Bank, right? When they say Eber Hayarden. I mean, when, they, when they discuss the West Bank, right, in Hebrew, they, I think they say Abraham. Oh, they, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I spoke to it. I, I was very rabbinic Hebrew, where Abraham yeah, typically yeah. means the East Bank. But yeah, in modern Hebrew, we, they call it Transjordan. Right? Modern Hebrew, what they refer to as the West Bank, is that called Abraham? So it could be, right? It could be modern Hebrew also uses it in the sense of this Pasuk. I, I, I honestly don't know. So, okay, I should have looked it up. But anyway, yes. So the, in this case, Abraham means what we call the West Bank today. Uh, today, we, obviously, we use the West Bank to refer to a specific political part of the territory which is uh, fought over between the Arabs and the Jews, but generally speaking, Yarden means the West Bank in the broad sense here, meaning everything Eretz Israel proper, the West Bank of the Yarden. There was, uh, it was an old, I think, Jabotinsky song, an old song of the, about Shtei Gedot Yarden, Harishon Shalanu, Hashniyagam Kain, you know, there are two banks to the Jordan, uh, the, the first is ours, the second one is ours as well, that the, 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 the vision of a greater Israel, but um, even, even on the other bank of the Yardin, because according to Aramisera, according to the stories in, in Chumash Navi, we conquered a large territory on the east bank of the Jordan as well. Today, you know, most, of the, most of the political discussion is on the, the west side of the Yardin, the, the part between the Mediterranean and the Yardin, but there is, a, there is part of Eretz Israel which extends to the east of the Yardin as well. There are some halakhic differences. It, was, it, 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 it does have a slightly different status than Eretz Israel proper. Okay, topic for another time. Maybe when we get to the end of Yeshua with all the borders, we'll, maybe we'll discuss more about the, the halakhic differences between the two banks, the, the two sides of the Jordan. So anyway, so all the Malchai Amari who were in the Everyard and Yama, who were on the west side of the Jordan, which was the, which was, were now facing attack by the Jews, Bechal Malchai Aknani, I'll mention Malchai as well, Asher al Hayam, that were by the sea. What are they here? They heard. What are they here? Asher Asher Hovish Hashem Esmeh Yardin. They heard that God had dried out the Jordan, the Pnei Bnei Yisrael, Ad 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 Avranu, Ad Avram, creating seven until they passed. The, the Radak says it means the same thing until they passed, until we passed. You know, from the Kanani perspective, it was they, Ad Avram, until they passed. They, the Jews, from our perspective, until we passed. It means the same thing. So when they heard what God had done, that He had dried the waters of the Yardin. In, the, in, in, in advance of the Bnei Yisrael until they, they crossed the Yardin, their hearts melted, they were, their morale was devastated. They had no spirit to fight against the, fight against the Jewish people. This, this language, of course, is, uh, is reminiscent of the language we had back in Perik Beis. In Perik Beis, when the spies infiltrated Yericho and they, and they spoke to Rachel Hazona, so Rachav said, a, a Pasuk which is strikingly similar to our Pasuk, that, that was before the Yardin had been crossed, so there was no Yardin yet, but there she said, she also said that the, mor- that the morale of Yericho is destroyed, and she said, that they've all, again, melted away in the presence of you. We have heard that God had dried out the Yamsuf, that had happened 40 years earlier when the Jews left Egypt. We heard that God had dried out the Yamsuf. What you did to the two Amorite kings, Sichon and Og, and so on. But Nishma, Bayimas, Levaveinu, we heard that our hearts melted. So Rachav had said that their hearts had already melted when they heard about the Nase of Kriyas Yamsuf, the drawing out of the Yamsuf. And now, after the Nase of the Yardin, the, the Navi uses remar- remarkably similar language. It says Kishmoa when they heard Asher Hovish, the same word, Asher Hovish Hashem. Now he would draw it out the Yardin as well. It wasn't just a fluke, a one-off thing. Hashem did it again. He's still, he's still doing it. He's still making miracles for the Jewish people. So now, Bayimas Levavim, again, their, their, their hearts melted. And again, just as Rachav said, Rachav said, uh, Rachav said, 
that, uh, that, that they, they have no ruach. She said, she, she told the people that Rachav had said, no one has any, any spirit left. And that's here also, so whatever the situation was before, it was apparently, again, reinforced or um, intensified because of what Hashem had done at the, at the yard. So that's Pasukal. So, okay, so that's what uh, Rashi explains the term of Avra Yardin. It means here, it means the west side. It was, it was called Avra Yardin because it was the opposite side of where they had been until now. Now, Pasik Bays, we begin to discuss the Mila. At that time, right after they crossed the Yardin, Amar Hashem al Yoshua, God spoke to Yoshua, God said to Yoshua, Make swords, knives, the cherub, we typically translate as sword, but you know, sword and a knife are not that different. A sword implies a, uh, a sword typically means a weapon of war. A knife we, we, we use sometimes as a, as, as, as a weapon, sometimes we use it as a butter knife or a you know, steak knife, but you know, cherubos I think implies uh, commonly a military weapon, but here it was being used for mila knives. We'll discuss what the word tzurim means in a moment. Make yourselves charvos tzurim. Vishuv molas bnei Yisrael shenus. Shuv means again, and circumcise the Jewish people shenus a second time. Uh, there are a number of questions here. Again, first of all, what does the word charvos tzurim mean? What are charvos tzurim? So many of the commentaries say that tzurim means sharp. The the targum unklus the the I'm sorry the 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 targum says not unklus but the the, the, tar, the Targum renders the word but the, the, the Targum Yonason this is the Targum Yonason renders the word Avadlach Ismalin Ismalavan Harifin make for yourselves sharp knives so, and Ismail is, uh, is a knife again not typically a weapon Ismail is more like a, like a surgeon's knife or a scalpel we might say or a, uh, a sharp and precision cutting knife that's an Ismail Harifin means sharp so the, the, the Targum Yonason renders Surim as Surim as sharp we're at chapter 5 we're in Pasuk Bays in chapter 5 so Ral Bag says that Surim uh, means sharp the Ralbag tells you they were actually made out of copper. Our knives are typically iron or steel, but the, he, he assumes the knives are made out of copper or brass. He gives a foreign word, a uh, French word, I don't know what it means exactly. Atsire, atsire. But he says they, they, used, uh, they used sharp knives. And he says, he says that, that's what the Targum means. Harifin, it means they were sharp. They were copper, they were, they were sharp, uh, sharp, proper knives, good for cutting. And, and that's what they used. And the reason they used those, he says, it was to minimize pain. He says that, that the goal was to minimize the pain that was felt. Uh, the copper knives apparently are easily made very sharp, and they, made, and, and they made these very sharp knives to minimize the pain that would be caused. So it was just basically good advice. According to the Radak, it was, according to the Ralbag, it was just good advice to use these very sharp knives. So a number of Mepharshim explain this way as well, that the Pekharvah's the Turim, they meant that the knives were very sharp. This is, ba- this is based on the Yonason. They, uh, Rashi learns this way. Rashi says that Rashi says, Kharbas Turim, Kitargumo, Ismail, and Kharifin. He brings the Paschim to Elam, Aftashiv Tur Kharbo, the turn back the sharpness of the sword. That the that means when it means when the, when the edge is turned to the side, it's, it's blunted, it's 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 bent, so it doesn't cut well. That it means to, to, to like to, to neutralize a sword, you say you 
bend the sharpness. You bend it back, you blunt the sharpness of the sword so, so it doesn't cut. That's fine. So Rashi says also that the Kharbasturim tur- means sharp knives. So a, a number of Mepharshim explain this way, that the, the, the Kharbasturim means sharp knives. There is apparently one Midrash, I did not have a chance to look it up uh, itself, there is one Midrash that says that Tzur in Hebrew often means uh, rock, the rock of Israel. Tzur Yisrael, Kuma Be'ezres Yisrael. We often refer to the rock of Israel, the Tzur Yisrael. Tzur can often mean a rock, not just a rock like a, a little rock. We mean Tzur is like a big rock, like a boulder, a solid, strong, solid, strong rock. So, so there, is, there is an understanding that Harba Tzurim means that they actually used, they actually used rock for the, for the, for the Mila. And that's actually something we find in the Chumash. Again, we find in the end of Parashat Shmos, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu and his family, when they were on their way back from, from Mitzrayim to Midian, from Midian to Mitzrayim, when Hashem appeared to Moshe in the burning bush and ordered him to go to return to Egypt to... Uh, right, right, exactly. When, when Moses was, was ordered to return to Egypt to redeem the Jewish people, so it's, there's a very, uh, a very mysterious episode on the way back, as Steve was saying, that it says that that on the way back it says that it said that the it, it says that Ayiba Derek Bamalone they were on the way, they were at a they were at a lodging place. Hashem appeared, Amalak appeared, some manifestation of God appeared to Moses and was threatening to kill him. Just at the, the understanding is somehow that this was related to a failure of Moshe to perform for his mila. But Tikach Tipora, Moshe was apparently incapacitated, but it says Tipora grabbed a, a tzor. She grabbed a sharp stone, they translated here. But Tikros is Arlaz Benash. She cut off the foreskin. She performed for his mila. But Tagal Araglov. Yes? Well, yes? Yes, very good. Well, 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 Simcha's telling us another midrash. We'll get to that midrash in a moment. So it says here in the Psukim that Tzipora took a rock, a sharp rock, and she performed Rizmila. And uh, she said, Chasan Dam Lamulo, she performed Rizmila with a rock. A flint, yeah. Uh, a flint is a sharp rock, right. Obviously, you don't want to do Mila with a round, uh, water-smooth rock from a river. That would not be good at all. Yes, it was a flint. It was a, it was a sharp kind of, uh, a, sharp, a sharp piece of rock she used for Mila. And that is the halacha. Mila can be performed, Mila can be performed with, uh, Mila can be performed with, uh, with a non-metal implement, with a rock, for example. But, uh, and then, then the Midrash says that this is the Pshat that my son Simcha was saying, the Midrash says that they used to use rocks, as Tipura used a rock. They started using metal. It was a reward for what happened in the, in the, in the, in the combat of David and Goliath. Uh, in, in Sefer Shmuel, we learn about the single combat between David and Goliath. Uh, Goliath had been, uh, had been, had been uh, humiliating the Jews. He had been mocking them and uh, disparaging them that he was such a hero. No, nobody, nobody was brave enough to stand up to him. David, young, young, young David, young, late, later King David, at this point he was a simple shepherd, he said, I will champion the honor of the Jewish people, I will fight against this Goliath. And the term Goliath today has become a term that means something large and threatening, named after Goliath, Goliath the Plishti, who was a giant and a monstrously threatening individual. So David challenged him in single combat. 
and it says that David, you know, famously, David has only a slingshot. He's a shepherd. He's not. A, he's not a knight. He's not a trained warrior. He has. A, he has a slingshot, and Goliath is armed with heavy armor, you know, ponderous heavy armor, so thick that he, uh, even a normal weapon, he'd be hard to penetrate it. But David Amelech shoots a stone at uh, at his helmet, at his hel- helmeted head, and the stone penetrates somehow penetrates the the metal of the helmet, strikes him in the head, and then kills him and, 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 and knocks him down. Sorry? Yeah, and they made him fall down. I don't remember the psukim, but they actually killed him. It says David then took his own sword and decapitated him. Yes, yeah, so and the stone may not have killed him actually, but the stone was the, the first step in his downfall, his literal downfall, his falling down. So the, the midrash says that the that 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 when the stone was beating toward Goliath's head, I think there was a, an argument. The, the stone told the metal, you know, give way, and I'm I'm, I'm here in the service of God, and the metal. You know, said that that's not what I do. You know, I'm not metal. You know, why, why do I have to give way? So the, I, I, I don't remember all the details of the midrash, but apparently, as a reward for the metal doing the will of God and parting and allowing the stone to penetrate and strike down Goliath, the metal was rewarded that it became the it took over the the job of, of being the implement used for brismila. So that's why we use brismila today. Today we use metal, but back then, according to this midrash, in the time of Zipporah and Moshe, in the time of the the story in Yeshua, they used to use stone. So again, the other Mepharshim say it was metal here as well, but according to this one midrash, they actually used they actually used uh, that they act they, they actually used stone back then. We know we, we talk about the Stone Age, the Bronze Age. We know there were there were there were periods in history where cutting implements, tools, were made out of different materials. So this is a machlokus among our, in our tradition. How was mila typically done? Was mila typically done back then using stone, or was it done using metal? Now the language of the Rambam, the language of the Rambam is you can use any cutting instrument for Mila, anything that cuts is fine. The Rambam says there's a minhag that is his iron is iron is in a mufkar, the iron is preferable. And the minhag is to use a sharp knife. We use a sharp knife made of iron. There's a long-standing minhag going back to the time of the Rishon, at least to the time of the Rishonim, that we use iron. Again, so one reason we use iron is because of this midrash. Because that uh, that the one reason we that the one reason we we use iron is because of this midrash. Because Goliath's helmet is uh, is being uh, compensated for its uh, giving in and doing the will of Hashem. Rav Asher Weiss, or Rav Asher Weiss, is a leading contemporary authority in uh, in Eretz Israel, a brilliant and creative thinker. He has a fascinating idea. I, I find this actually quite troubling, but he has a uh, he has a fascinating idea. He says in in, in rabbinic law, brought in Shulchan Aruch, in Talmud and rabbinic law, when it discusses the Machal Shabbos to save a life. So we, we all know the rule that save, preserving life overrides keeping Shabbos. That if you need to if you need to violate the Sabbath to save a life, we do it. We drive to the hospital. We perform any any medical treatment necessary to save lives. So the halacha has elaborate rules for what types of what types of medical conditions or injuries are considered sufficiently grave as to be life-threatening. In practice, we mostly rely on medical advice. We mostly rely on uh, ask a doctor whether this condition is serious enough to, to, to be uh, pose, a, pose a, a mortal threat. But we also rely on certain traditions. As Hazal told us, we, we have certain conditions that, that we treat uh, automatically as being life-threatening, like childbirth. And, uh, other conditions are we don't make an assessment each time. We just say that you know, certain conditions uh, the halakha t- teaches us are considered automatically, no questions asked, life-threatening. So one of the things that I'll tell us is that a, 
any wounds, any any cut, any any uh, any any trauma to the to, to the flesh, to the skin, that's caused by an iron implement, is automatically considered life-threatening. Now, it's not clear that we pass one like this. It is brought in Shulchan Aruch, but it's, uh, modern science certainly does not think that any time there's always the risk, some small risk of infection of the blood, of open open wound getting infected. That's not dependent on iron per se. Yes. What material are staples made out of? Simcha wants to know what staples are made of. I, I assume they're iron. But, uh, Simcha says he once got a cut from a staple. And he just took it out. He did not seek medical attention. <laughs> occasionally, <laughs> occasionally you're, you're in the kitchen. Occasionally, you cut yourself with a knife. If it's a deep cut, you go to the, you go to uh, you, you get medical treatment. You, you stitch it up, or you get dermabond, or whatever it is. If it's uh, you know, Simcha says he had blood. But if it's a small scratch, then you you know you, we typically wouldn't think twice. We just put a you know wash it with uh, peroxide, put a bandaid on, and uh, and move on. But the halacha, halacha has this rule that any cut with an iron, an iron implement is considered life-threatening. Again, I, I don't think we follow this today. But there is such a halacha on the books. The Talmud says this. And Rav Asher Weiss says that the reason we use, the, that, that the reason we use iron is, to, is because the mitzvah of Mila is supposed to have a certain element of danger in it and that, and that we, deliberately, we deliberately use iron to introduce at least a small element of danger into the Mila because that's the way Mila is ideally supposed to be done. A very, it's a very, very strange idea. Very, very strange idea. I, I, I have a lot of trouble with this. It is true that the Talmud says that Mila is a mitzvah which typically has some danger. The, there is a pasuk that says, Ki haragnu kalayom, that we die, we're killed for God's sake, uh, all day, all the time. And the Gemara says, Zu Mila, that this is Mila, which is a mitzvah which is inherently carries a certain danger with it. Now, we know, of course... Practically speaking, we try to minimize the danger as much as possible. If there's any, if there's any, if the, if the baby has any uh, condition which can make the meal dangerous, we push off the meal. Even for things like elevated bilirubin counts, which modern science does not consider particularly dangerous unless it's a symptom of a more severe problem. Even for that, we push off the meal. Certainly, if a, kid, if a child is born premature, if a child has other medical conditions, we'll typically push off the meal. We only do meal after we're convinced that it's safe. Nevertheless, in Chazal's time, certainly before they had modern medicine, the, the Chazal recognized that Mila was not 100% safe. There, 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 is, there was such a thing as Mace as Machmas Mila, that children did occasionally die as a result of Mila. Rarely, but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't totally unheard of. So in Halacha, in Halacha, Mila is considered a mitzvah which carries with it a certain level of sakana. Mila is a mitzvah, we'll, we'll discuss this more, I think, in, in subsequent shiurim on these tukim, but Mila was a mitzvah which always entailed a certain degree of Mesiris Nefesh. So the so the Rav Asher Weiss is, is saying, as I recall, he's saying that not only is this uh, an inevitable side effect of Mila that it carries some danger, it's actually the ideal way Mila is supposed to be performed. Mila is supposed to entail a certain limited level of risk. I don't understand this at all. This just seems to fly so much in the face of everything in Aramisara that we do whatever we can to to, to minimize uh, minimize or eliminate risk. God does not want child sacrifice. You know, that, that, that's not what's not what it, even Ravasher surely doesn't mean you do something really dangerous. You're not going to use an infected knife. You're not going to use Hasmashel. You're not going to use that, it's, it's clear halacha that you, that, you, that you do everything you can to avoid danger. And even this danger of iron, we don't really pass it like this. We, we don't, you know, we, we, I don't think we treat and practice an iron, a, a shallow iron cut <coughs> as life-threatening. But somehow Ravasher feels that the minute to use iron is somehow a reference to this idea 
that we, that we deliberately preserve at least a small, you know, percent of danger, that that's somehow a uh, feature of Mila to preserve at least a very small element of danger. Again, I have trouble understanding this. Does it give any rationale for that? I mean, it flies in the face of, uh, you know... Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I've been, I haven't read this uh, in the original in a while, but this is, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this from memory, but I don't think it gives much rationale, aside from the Pasuk of... I will say, though, what I, what I did spend a lot of time on, which I find uh, I've, been, I've been an activist about this for years, is a related question, and that is pain. Forget danger. Is pain in Mila a feature or a, or a bug, as we say in computers? Is, is pain an unfortunate uh, consequence, or is pain a desirable aspect of Mila? We, we, we read before the Ralbag. The Ralbag says, the Ralbag says that the that the reason they use these very sharp knives is to minimize the pain. Ralbag is telling us that pain is to be avoided as much as possible. Like Shrita, right. There are those who say that about ritual slaughter. Exactly. Shrita as well. That the Torah's laws about Shrita are designed to, <coughs> to minimize the animal suffering as much as possible. Right, exactly. There is an opinion in Brismila that the pain is part of the mitzvah and should not be totally avoided. About a century ago, when the use of anesthesia was beginning to become widespread. So the question arose as to whether anesthesia should be used during bris meal. The practice today, the common practice today in orthodox circles, is that for an ordinary healthy baby, anesthesia is typically not used. Any form of anesthesia is not used. No form of anesthesia is used. For adults or for older children, if you have a Balchuva who never had a brismila or a Yer, a convert who needs to undergo a brismila, then I believe we do use some form of anesthesia. But for, but for infants, for an ordinary healthy infant on the eighth day, anesthesia is not used. The question is why not? Is there any, is there any, what are the halakhic arguments for or against the use of anesthesia? So, a hundred years ago, there's a tshuva by Romer Arik. Romer Arik was a great Polish uh, posik. He was one of the Gidole Hadar of that time. And his sefer, Imre Yosher, was a great halachic classic. And he wrote, and he was asked about using anesthesia for a, for a child, an infant, in a bris mila. He says you should not use it. He says that mila, he brings midrashim, that he understands to imply that the pain is part and parcel of the mitzvah, that the pain is, is an integral chalik of the mitzvah. And, you should, and, he, and he argues the chazal themselves had anesthesia, they had an, an anesthetic technology, and they didn't use it, he says, for mila, and it was never the minute to use it. He argues we have a tradition not to use it, and there's a midrashic reason not to use it, that pain is an integral part of the mitzvah. Other Akronim pushed back. Other Akronim pushed back against that and said there's, there's no real source for this. Chazal never tell us that pain is an integral part of the mitzvah. There are midrashim that assume there is pain. That's because given the reality of, uh, of the technology they had several thousand years ago, yes, pain was, pain was an integral part, of the, integral part of the mitzvah. But today, where Hashem gave us the gift of modern medicine and anesthesia, there's nothing wrong with using anesthesia. On the contrary, some poskim have argued that if it's available and it's not medically contraindicated, of course you should use it. Um, how, why should you cause pain to another Jew? He's still, a, he's still a human being. He's still a Jew, even though he's a baby. Why would you cause pain to a Jew if it's not necessary? If, if the halacha doesn't say that you have to do it, uh, you shouldn't do it. You should not use anesthesia. So many, many post in the 20th century have debated this question back and forth. Should anesthesia be used or not? The, there, there are several different positions. Again, there's Romer Arik and his followers who say you should not use it because it's against the halachic philosophy of the mitzvah. Others say no such thing. Ramosha Feinstein said you shouldn't use it because he, he believed, uh, he, he was told, he, he was led to understand that anesthesia is not really so healthy. 
we, we do it as adults because we can't tolerate the pain, but anesthesia is not really the healthiest way for the body to recover. And therefore, he says, for, for the baby, we do what's best for him, which is actually to put him through a little more pain, but in terms of the healing, in the long run, anesthesia is actually, anesthesia lists brismila is actually preferable. That's debatable. You have to ask the doctors whether that's true or not. Is there really any, uh, any downside to using uh, a simple topical anesthesia? Obviously, general anesthesia has its risks. It has, it has considerably more danger of you, you tamper with the heart and other things. Yes, there, there's more danger, but is there really any medical reason not to use topical anesthesia? It's a factual question. You have to consult the physicians and hear what they say. Roshlom Zalman Orbach argued that tradition itself is important. That the fact that a, when a mitzvah is done a certain way for uh, time immemorial, since time immemorial, we don't tamper with the mitzvah and start changing, even if we have no concrete reason why. We, we, we just, it was good enough for our fathers, it's good enough for us. Ramosha Feinstein himself rejects this. He tells her, Rishon Lazama, there's no such thing. If you can't come up with a reason, if you can't articulate why, the fact that this is how it was done, that's what, those were the tools available. Those were the technologies they had. If there's no, if you can't come up with a, with a halachic religious reason for it, why shouldn't we do it? So Ramosha himself says the reason is because it's medically not a good idea. But again, that's debatable. Suppose you can have all kinds of different perspectives on whether you should or should not use anesthesia. Rabbi Avram Sofer Abraham. Rabbi Dr. Avram Sofer Abraham is a leading expert in Israel on halacha, medical halacha in particular. And he, he corresponded closely with many Gedolei Torah, current and, and previous generation Gedolei Torah. He relates, in the first edition of his book, he says, his Nishmas Avram, his great classic, he says he spoke to both Rosh he he spoke to Zaman Orbach and Rav Yashuv and asked them about using anesthesia, and they said that if there's no reason, if there's no, med- if there's no medical reason not to, then yeah, you absolutely should. Later, he said, he heard people saying in the name of Rav Yashuv that you should not use anesthesia. He went back to Rav Yashuv and he asked, so you know, why not? You told me yes, and then now I heard you say no. Rav Yashuv said, uh, they showed him Rameir Arik's tshuva, and he decided that Rameir Arik was a sufficiently eminent authority that he defers to his position. Suppose you can go back and forth on this, on, on, on whether you should use anesthesia or not, and if not, why not? For, for using general anesthesia, there are other reasons, especially if the person's an adult, maybe he should be awake for the mitzvah, he should be more of a part of the mitzvah, but for a baby who's anyway, if we're talking about topical anesthesia, those considerations don't apply, and for a baby anyway, it's, uh, he's not really involved in the mitzvah. So I personally felt fairly strongly that the arguments in favor of anesthesia were much more solid and stronger than the arguments against. So when this one was born and had his bris milah, I actually asked the mohel to use a topical anesthetic. In, 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 my, in his case, the mohel we used, his day job was an oral surgeon. So he actually was familiar with, uh, with such things. He actually you know, was, was, was quite competent in the, administer, in the administering of anesthesia. So he was perfectly happy to do it, except he wasn't sure, as a matter of tradition, as a matter of the minog and the misera, whether he should do it. So he consulted, he consulted his... Uh, his mohel, who his his mentor, his teacher, who was a who was a, a legendary, eminent mohel in uh, in Washington Heights, and he asked him. He, I, I forget the name at the moment, but uh, very well known mohel, everyone in Washington Heights uses, father and son team. So he, he asked them. Uh, my client wants anesthesia. Can I do it? They're like, yeah, you can do it if you want. So, so, so his his bris was performed with anesthesia. If it was, if. Uh, if God, uh, if God grants me another son, I would still incline to do anesthesia for the next one as well. Many people have uh, told me I was not correct. They even, I think, the Rashiva Hare, I think the Ronald Piansky, I think, looked at me a little askance when I told him that I did, uh, if I recall correctly, I told him I did it with, uh, I did it with, uh, 
with anesthesia. But in, in my view, again, there, there's no real... Uh, it, it's very hard to come up with a real argument for why for why you shouldn't. I mean, the objective is to remove the forces. Yes, right? yes, so the objective is to remove the forces. Like, you know, technical, uh, yeah. technical questions. Right, exactly. That, that seems to be the I mean, straightforward that's the mitzvah, approach. Right? right, that's yeah. the main mitzvah, certainly. Incidentally, there's a related discussion about the use of anesthesia in childbirth. In the 19th century, when they began developing anesthesia and using it for childbirth, so there were Christians, there were fundamentalist Christians who were opposed. They said, it says in the Bible, God tells Eve right at the beginning in, uh, in, in, the terrible, in the terrible catastrophe of the snake. So it says, God told woman, he told Eve, Harba, Arba, it's vonech, veheronech, I shall greatly increase your suffering in your childbirth, be'etzev tel dibanim, in pain shall you bear children. So the fundamentalist Christian says, it says in the good book, the word of the Lord is that a woman shall suffer through childbirth, and we are not going to try to alleviate that, it's God's will. But as rabbinic thinkers have pointed out, there is no, there was no parallel development, absolutely no parallel development in Jewish thought. There was, again, never say, no, I'm sure if I live long enough and I, and I, and I study enough Torah, I'm sure I'll eventually discover some rabbinic thinker who took this position as well. But as far as anyone knows to date, there is no rabbinic thinker who ever took this position. There was never any rabbinic opposition to uh, using anesthesia in childbirth. Our, our perspective is, yes, God cursed Eve with pain and childbirth. That's, that's God's business. It, it's our job to do what we can. God put us in the world, and he gave us brains, and he gave us technology, and he gave us the, the ability to harness the world and to, and to improve our lot. And we, we learned how to make fire and the wheel and the, other, other, and, and the Internet and so on, indoor plumbing and modern dentistry and so on, and eyeglasses. And, uh, and it's our job that God put us in the world, of Shammar, and it's our job to improve and to do what we can to, to improve our lot. And, and, and the use of anesthesia was never opposed in rabbinic thought. And this comes up because Rabbi Yaakov Hillel, a leading, a leading, uh, a leading Kabbalist in Israel today, Rabbi Abraham reports, he was asked about, you're an expert on Kabbalah. Going back to Brismila, does it say anywhere about Brismila, is there any Kabbalistic source for the idea that pain is an important part of the mitzvah and shouldn't be eliminated? Rabbi Yaakov Hillel said, nope. He says there is no source from Kabbalah that he knows of to, uh, to possession idea. And he made the parallel to childbirth. He says, yes, the Torah told Avram, do bris mila, and maybe he told him it'll hurt. Madrashim say it'll hurt. The Torah told Chava she's going to be hurt during childbirth as well. That's not a reason to attempt to eliminate that as much as we can. And the same thing applies to Mila, Rabbi Hillel said, just as when it comes to childbirth, there's no reason not to use anesthesia. We all do it. We don't all do it, but many, many of us do it uh, to, to eliminate the pain, reduce or eliminate the pain. So too, he says, there is no reason in, in, in Kabbalah not to use anesthesia to reduce or eliminate the pain of the pain of Mila. So uh, that was the that was the argument I found persuasive, and uh, that's why I I did I did I did use anesthesia for the Mila of my son. Getting back to our topic, and we said there are bagels. That's why they use very sharp knives because it would minimize the pain. And uh, and uh, so again, Rav Asher Weiss has this very strange idea that we use, we dafka use iron because we want to increase the danger, similar to the idea of the Reyosha, we want to increase the, the pain, but it's a very hard idea to accept. The, the, when, it comes to, when it comes to pain, maybe some of our should say it's part of the myth, but to say that we deliberately, we dafka do it in such a way to preserve the danger, that, that just seems like such a strange idea. I've never been able to wrap my head around that. But that is what Rav Asher Weiss says, as I recall. Anyway, this is the beginning of, the, this is this pasuk that he made, Charvus Turim, which many of our should say mean sharp knives. 
There is an opinion, though, that Charbathura means stone eyes. They used to use stone, although, again, today, obviously, today, for a long time, the Minog has been to use iron knives. The end of the Pasuk, the end of Pasuk Beis says, Vishuv Molas Bnei Yisrael Shemis. The word shuv, shuv means, again, to repeat. And Shemis means a second time. Both, both these words are, are, are pose a very difficult problem. What does shuv mean? What does shenis mean? When was the first time? What, what, what exactly are we referring to? So the Psukim are actually going to... The, so the, the, the Psukim a little bit later, we'll, we'll get to this in future weeks, the, the, the Psukim say that the Psukim are going to tell us soon that the Jews who left Egypt had brismila. The Jews in the desert did not have brismila. It's still, it's still not entirely clear what Shainis means a second time. There is a midrash that the commentaries bring that there had previously been a mass brismila on the night the Jews left Egypt, the night of the Karban Pesach. Sorry? Right. So Rashi says, <coughs> Rashi says, what is, Rashi says, what is, what is Shainis? So Rashi says, They had previously had a mass circumcision the night of the Exodus. Kahal Gadol Yachad, an entire, the entire community of Israel together, Vazu Pam Shainis. And this was the second mass Mila <coughs> in between for the 40 years in the interim, Bris Mila had not occurred for reasons that we'll discuss in the subsequent Shirim. But 40 years there had been no Bris Mila, there had been a mass Bris Mila at the time of the, the leaving Egypt. Another, and this was the second mass Bris Mila now. And if that's how you understand Shainis, then that could be how you understand Bashuv as well. That Shuv means do this again. Second mass verse Mila. There are other ways to understand the word Shuv. The Radak understands the word Shuv. The Radak says that Bashuv means do it and do it again. Keep doing it. Keep, you redouble your efforts to keep doing verse Mila until everyone is circumcised. Chazar, Pamach, Chazar, Pamach, Pam, Bamachna. Keep going, keep circulating through the, through the camp. Find all the Jews who need verse Mila. So shuv means just do it again and again until until everyone has a bris mila. Other commentaries say like Rashi, like Mesudas David says, the shuv shenis means shenis because the, the night of Yitzchak Mitzrayim, everyone had a bris mila. This would seem to imply not only was there no bris mila in the desert, which the pasuk is going to say explicitly in a few psukim from now, the pasuk is going to say that kiarboim shana halchemesh all the midbar. And uh, and in those, in those forty years, it says it says it says v'chal ha'am ha'ilod in pasuk hey it says v'chal ha'am ha'ilod in ba'midbar ba'derek hazim mitzrayim lo'malu all the Jews born in the desert didn't have bris mila that's a great question why that's the central question of this narrative why exactly that we'll discuss in the future but if we assume like like Rashi Mitzudas David says that there was a mass bris mila the night before the Exodus and that was the last time they did mila until uh, until uh, until now. The question also, that also seems to imply there was no bris mila earlier in Mitzrayim, that that's where they had to have a mass bris mila the night of the Exodus. So again, the question is why, why had there been no bris mila going on in Egypt? Avram was already commanded in bris mila, and, and the Pashas Lech Lecha, and the, and, and the, and, so Simcha says they had to work all the time. Maybe it was dangerous them to do, I mean, the babies, I don't think were doing work. Though the Egyptians were better? No, the men the men were too busy to do with meal. They would just work, work, work all day. You were saying it's... Right, maybe, maybe, maybe the law prevented it. Maybe the, maybe the Mitzrayim wouldn't have tolerated it. Another possibility. The Egyptians themselves circumcised? That's interesting. So the Egyptians themselves may have practiced uh, circumcision. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so we'll have to discuss this maybe in, maybe in, in, in the future as well. 
why the Jews in the desert, uh, why the Jews in the in Mitzrayim hadn't had a bris milah. We have various suggestions. We'll have to discuss this further. There's also another idea here that the, the Ralbag says that the milah in both these cases, then the night of the Exodus and now on the, at the beginning of the conquest of Canaan, the milah in both these cases, the Ralbag says, is connected to, to, to entering and possessing Eretz Canaan. Back in Pashas Lechlecha, with the first time the Torah talks about Brismila, when Hashem commands Avram Avinu to do Brismila, so the Psukim say, Hashem says, do Brismila, and then Venasati Lechol, Hashem says, I will establish my covenant between you and your, your descendants, Lebris Olam, and I will give you your descendants, I will give them the land of your, the land that you're dwelling in, that Mila is connected to Eretz Canaan, to the inheritance of Eretz Israel. So the Ralbag says that the first mass, again, he's not directly addressing why they didn't do Mila in Mitzrayim, but he says the first, or the Midbar at this point, but he says the first mass Mila, they expected to enter Eretz Canaan imminently, they were delayed catastrophically in the desert for 40 years because of the terrible sin of the Meraglim, but the plan had always been to enter Eretz Canaan soon, soon after the Exodus. So that was the first Bris Mila when they left Egypt, and in anticipation of entering Canaan, they did the first Bris Mila, because as, as Hashem told Avram, Mila is going to be the, the means, the, the, the precondition for inheriting Eretz Canaan. And now they were finally, 40 years later, prepared to conquer, and they had just crossed the Yardin, they were finally prepared to begin conquering and taking over Eretz Canaan. So now they did Mila again. So Mila is connected to inheriting, to inheriting uh, Eretz Canaan. The Ralbag says two reasons. First of all, because that's what Hashem said in Pasha's Lechlecha. He, he, explicitly linked, he explicitly linked Mila to inheriting Eretz Canaan. And second, he says, because the, in general, the doing mitzvahs enables you to get more divine providence. That This is a major theme of the Ralbag all over. The, the better a person behaves, the more mitzvahs he does, the, the closer his connection with God is, and the more God ensures that he gets the good things, he gets things that are valuable and important to him. So the Jews were requiring divine providence. I would have thought they just needed it before they crossed the Argentine as well. But certainly now they're going to start engaging in wars, uh, repeated wars against inhabitants of Canaan. So there was a, so there was a need to do bris mila to ensure the to ensure the divine providence. But anyway, yes, so, so, so that's what Shuv, that Shuv do, do the Mila of Rei Yisrael. Shainis, the Shainis is, is widely understood by the commentaries as referring to, uh, as referring to a second mass bris Mila. There's no actual Pasuk that says that they had a major mass bris Mila right before leaving Egypt. It does say in Parshas, in Parshas Bo, it does say that when Hashem gave instructions about the Karim Pesach, so Hashem does make a big deal out of bris Mila. He says... He says, "Those who cast a pasach. This is the law of the pasach. Called Ben Necher Layochalbo. No, no non-Jew can, uh, no non-Jew can eat the pasach." And then it says, "Kolebedesh Miknas Kesef Umalto." So Mila is a precondition for for, for the pasach. Then it says, There is a major connection between Mila and Pesach. The Gemara Tzachim elaborates on this. So someone who doesn't have a bris Mila can't eat the current Pesach. It's a major point of Pesach. So the Torah does say that Mila was necessary for the current Pesach. It says, we say in the Haggadah, You will live and leave Egypt in the merit of two bloods. One was the blood of the current Pesach, one was the blood of Mila. 
And there are Midrashim that, based on these hints, there are Midrashim that indicate they have this mass brismila. It's not quite explicit in the Pasuk, but this is how at least some commentaries understand the word Shainis. The Shainis means this was the second mass brismila, the first in the time of the night of the Exodus. This was the second. We'll return to these themes and the other ones we touched on, Bezras Hashem, in future, future classes.